Okay, our first speaker is going to talk to us on um, government slippery slopes and tyranny. He is Dr. Richard Ebeling, and uh, he is uh, current president of the FEE. He has written extensively and is a very passionate advocate for free markets. Uh, Dr. Ebeling. Well, good morning. Not too long ago, the seven dwarfs went off to work in the mine. And around noontime, uh, Snow White realized that it was getting around that time when she normally takes them lunch. So she packed up their little pails and walked down to the mine. And as she approached the mouth of the, the mine in the, in, the, in the hill, the mountain, she noticed that smoke was belching out. The mine had caved in. And in desperation, she started shouting, Is anyone there? Is anyone there? Can anyone hear me? Hello? Is, is anyone alive? And then just as Snow White was about to give up all hope that any of the seven dwarfs had survived, she heard a murmur from inside the cave. Vote for Hillary. Vote for Hillary. And she sighed with relief and said, Oh, thank goodness, at least Dopey survived. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here with you again. I was invited uh, a year or two ago uh, to speak at your annual meeting, and it is always a pleasure to uh, speak before your association. It is one of the most uh, principled organizations in the United States in standing against the growth of government and the intrusion of the state into people's personal and economic and most vital aspects of their lives. Now, I wanted to start off by mentioning that the president of the, the founding president of the Foundation for Economic Education, Leonard Reed, uh, once spoke in front of your association Oh, way back in the 70s, if I remember. And uh, he talked about a number of issues. Um, and uh, I'm probably going to sort of touch upon a number of them again. But uh, let me start off in the following context. In April of 1946, Leonard Reed, Fee's founder, gave an address before the Economics Club in Detroit, Michigan. And that was about a month after he, Leonard Reed, had established the Foundation for Economic Education in March of 1946 in New York. And he began his talk before the Economics Club in Detroit, Michigan, by saying that at the podium at which he was standing, if there was a button that he could push, that by pushing it would result in the abolition, the ending, the elimination of all government regulations, controls, intrusions, he would do so. He would do so, he said, because all such controls, regulations, interventions have deleterious effects on the economy and undermine and ultimately destroy freedom. Now, what he was also, in a sense, emphasizing here was the undesirability and the impracticality of what today is called gradualism. 
The idea that the state is big, the government has grown in size and intrusion, in regulatory control, and that somehow what we must devise is a way to diminish, reduce, reverse these government intrusions, controls, and regulations in some incremental or piece-by-piece fashion. What he was basically saying is that that is not, in principle, the way he would want to see it done if there was a button on that podium that he could push. The reason for this is the symmetry by which government grows and the symmetry of how difficult it is to, re- to reverse that process. When Bill Clinton and Hillary proposed their national health care system uh, during uh, Clinton's first term in office, you'll recall that the Republicans were able to relatively easily uh, prevent that from being implemented. They were able to prevent it from being implemented because the idea of, even though government already was so involved in health care issues in the United States, the details of which I don't need to tell this audience, the imagery that government now was going to impose and establish and implement what appeared to the people of the United States as a national government-managed health care system was too much of a, of, a, of a seeming shock, such a disruption of what people took for granted. And it failed. The way the state has, in fact, grown and the way the population has been willing to accept its growth has not been by a categorical shift of private enterprise towards socialized medicine, Uh, a free market towards a regulated economy, but by incremental growths that have seemed to be not harmful or dangerous or deleterious to the essential nature of a free society. If government, let's say, 50, 75, 100 years ago, had said that we're now going to impose an entire network of government regulations and controls on the economy, people would have been as reluctant to accept it the shock of such a proposed dramatic institutional change would have seemed so extreme that they would have rejected it. But instead, what has happened over the last century, whether it be in commerce, industry, communications, health care, retirement issues, is that the state has grown in small and tiny little increments. Well, of course freedom is good. But surely there is this social problem that needs fixing. Can't we at least compromise or concede a little bit of our commercial or personal freedom to allow government to at least handle this small little area? And then, of course, another issue comes up, and another issue comes up, and another issue comes up. And by little increments, the state increases its control, its intrusiveness, its presence in the social and personal, commercial areas of our life. And then when the government does introduce these interventions and regulations and controls, they invariably disrupt, create imbalances in, distort the natural process of the interactions of peaceful, competitive participants in the market arena. If the government imposes a price control, 
That price can now no longer be assured to be one that reflects people's valuations or what they think a service or a product is worth and what people would be willing to supply it for. And therefore, the market in terms of the price is thrown out of balance. Or the government introduces a production or, a, or an anti-competitive regulation. And now the wheels of enterprise are slowed down, seizing up. Because in a world of change and need for adaptation, the individuals in the market cannot as easily adjust and respond to the ever-occurring changes in the market and social arena. And so suddenly, supply seems not to match demand. The innovations that normally had been occurring to, to bring uh, improvements or, 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 or adaptations are slowed down or prevented or seem not to occur with the same frequency. The ease with which resources, and raw materials, and labor can shift from one sector of the economy, giving changing patterns of supply and demand, and which are necessary if markets continue to mesh and be integrated to see that what we want and what we need are satisfied smoothly and effectively every day, day in and day out, no longer occurs in the way that it seemed to have worked in the past. And so then the government intervention, the regulation, the control that brings about the disruption, the imbalance, the distortion, now seems to need a new government intervention, regulation, and control. Because the interveners, the regulators, the controllers do not admit and are unwilling to admit that their earlier intervention, regulation, and control is the one that caused the problem. No, it's again a failure of the market to adapt and live with the regulation and control, so therefore the controls and the regulations have to be extended, expanded, to overcome supposedly another market failure, which in fact is an example of the failure of the interventionist regulatory economy. And in this process, as the regulations, the controls, the interventions, the managements of our lives incrementally, slowly, year by year, decade by decade, begin to envelop more and more of our lives, what is the result? People no longer even think of it, challenge it. It seems as American as the star-spangled banner and the red, white, and blue of the flag fluttering in the breeze. Today, Americans consider Social Security to be the American way. Today, Americans view Medicare and Medicaid as the American way. Today, Americans view government regulation and control of the marketplace in general <coughs> as the American way. In a way that Americans 100 years ago would have been shocked, would have resented and resisted such a state presence in people's lives because it has occurred by small and small increments. And therefore, people have adapted, adjusted, and accepted it. Now, if that's how the state has grown, how do we reverse this process? Most of those who argue about that the state is too big the state is too intrusive, the state is too regulatory, say that the American people are not ready for a radical change. If you call for the abolition of Social Security, if you call for the abolition of Medicare and Medicaid, if you call for the abolition of 
intrusive and extensive regulations and controls. The American people will view you as extreme, radical, fringe, outside the pale of legitimate political discourse, ideological respectability. But let me suggest this, is that if real and radical change is to occur, if the free society is to be restored, if retirement is to be the private affairs of the citizenry again, if issues of medical care and the relationship between doctors and patients are to be where it used to be and should be again, in the private arena of agreement and contract and association in the doctor's office, then it cannot be reversed if all you try to do is think in incremental terms. Why is this the case? Well, economists have jargon and lingo. Okay, jargon and lingo. And this jargon and lingo tries to explain processes of of things such as how does government grow and why is it so difficult to get government to be smaller. And one of the things that economists sometimes refer to is what they call the concentration of benefits and the diffusion of burdens. Let us suppose that the government decides to intervene or regulate or control in some part of the marketplace. The very nature of the intervention, the regulation of the control, means that some government benefit is going to be be bestowed upon some segment of the society. If the government limits competition, then the existing suppliers in that market are protected and secured from potential rivals who otherwise would have entered their market and attempted to compete away their business. If they're in a profession and the government establishes regulatory rules that make it difficult for new entrants to enter that sector of the economy, those professionals have a concentrated benefit because they're secure from competitors competing in their profession. Now, once that is established, that's worth money. If new rivals, if new competitors, if new innovators, if new entrepreneurs cannot enter that profession, that occupation, that sector of the economy, that means that the existing occupants in that profession, occupation, or sector of the economy do not have to be concerned about working as hard or be as fearful of losing a portion of their customer business. Now, who does, that, who does that burden of that regulation fall upon? The rest of the society. Every time the government introduces a regulation, a control, it places a burden on all of us who therefore will be denied a potential rival product, the potential innovative improvement in our lives because some supplier, some controller, some innovator will have been locked out of that sector of the economy. That also explains why it's so difficult to reverse this. Just to make this a little more concrete, let us suppose the government was to give a sector of the economy a subsidy. Okay, and let us suppose that it were to be a subsidy on some product. And let us suppose that the subsidy would involve a small increment of taxation on all of us to give that subsidy to that privileged sector of the economy. And let us suppose that the extra taxes would be merely, let's say, 10 cents more a year on each of us in the society. So 10 cents more on, let's say, 200 million people. 
But let us suppose that all those 10 cent pieces from 200 million people were added up and all of those dimes collected from each and every one of us would then be redistributed through some favor and privilege such as a government subsidy to that, that privileged and favored sector. Well, all of those dimes added from the rest of us would be concentrated in the hands of those privileged to receive those, those dimes. So those individual dimes would add up to tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. That's a concentrated benefit in which millions of dollars go to a few specializing in the privileged and favored and subsidized sector of the economy, while the rest of us, in a diffuse fashion, bear the burden. Ten cents more here, ten cents more there, ten cents more here. But add up all the dimes, and that's millions of dollars for that specialized and favored sector. Now imagine reversing this. Someone such as myself says, and the regulations, and the controls, and the protections, and the, and the subsidies. Consumers will have more variety. Consumers will have a chance to have more competitors competing for their business. Con competitor, uh, consumers over time will see innovation and improvement in the price of the product, in the quality of the product, in the variety of the product. All of us will benefit as a society's whole. If I can use that phrase, that of course is always much abused, the social good. So why not abolish the subsidy, the privilege, the favor, the protection? If all of us will benefit as customers, as consumers, more products, better products, cheaper products, innovative products, over time as the market is allowed to work. Because those who have been receiving the privilege, the favor, the protection, the subsidy, to whom all of our dimes have been concentrated, will now fight tooth and nail in the halls of political power to see that the protection, the favor, the privilege, the subsidy is not taken away. Because if it's taken away, the loss is concentrated. The millions of dollars are lost and the dimes flow back in all of our hands. So what will they do? They will argue, well, you know, of course there are social problems. And, and nothing is without abuse. But let's not rush into any radical change. Let's just sort of fudge around the margins and change this a little bit. But all the time, the nature of the favors, the privileges, the protections, the subsidies will not have changed. That is why, in my opinion, in the long run, such incrementalism is bound to fail. Such incrementalism is bound to fail. Because any attempt to incrementally reduce will be fought and resisted. Because the loss to the specialized favored group, the specialized favored group, is very big. What is necessary, therefore, is to take the long-run perspective. And that long-run perspective is to realize that just as these changes took a long time, of gov growth in government took a long time to, to develop, to be implemented, to strangle us. It may very well take a long time to reverse them. But if they are to reverse them, what we need to do is to shock our fellow citizens. Shock our fellow citizens by saying, what is government doing in the retirement business? Shouldn't retirement be your own personal affair?
the decision as to how much you can afford and would like to enjoy things in the present versus how much you could afford and would want to value preparing uh, some uh, security and, and financial uh, 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 basis for your own retirement? To scratch our head and say to our fellow citizen, what is government doing in the schooling business? reading, writing, arithmetic, uh, preparing the young for a profession, an occupation, uh, the, the, the work of life, uh, sh shouldn't that be the parents' responsibility? Uh, isn't it reasonable that, that just as we look for, 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 for specialized services of expertise to train and supply and provide us with everything else, uh, why do we put up with a government monopoly over education? Uh, why can't the market supply this? with the diversity and the creativity and the innovativeness and the price competitiveness for schooling as with everything else. And scratching our head, saying to our fellow citizens, well, what is government doing in the health care business? Why is government mandating what type of treatments and medications and, and visits to the doctor and, and, and services that can be provided should be left in the hand of a bunch of government regulators and controllers? Why shouldn't this be the matter of the private sector? Why shouldn't this be a matter of the patient and the physician? The patient, the physician, and the hospital. The patient, the physician, and private insurance options that may be chosen and accepted by the participants in the healthcare arena. What, what is the government to do with this? And then I would suggest it takes a little bit of homework and a little bit of historical knowledge on the part of each of us. Because when our fellow citizens taken aback that we should say this, respond, but, but who will take care of the poor and what will make sure that doctors you know, will, will, will be available for our services? That we remind people that there was life before Medicare and Medicaid. You're the doctors. You're the physicians. You know your own life histories as medical doctors. You know the history of medicine in America far better than I do. But before Medicare and Medicaid, there were charity hospitals that took care of the poor, the, in, the indigent. There was price discrimination. Doctors would charge their wealthier patients a little bit more to basically cross-subsidize patients who are financially less well-off, which, of course, is not really allowed anymore under the government programs. And in rural areas, the physician, if the patients in that rural area didn't have any money, got paid in the chicken or the pig. And that sounds humorous today, but we all know that. You know, my wife, some of you know my wife, Anna Ebeling. She's from Russia. She once gave a, a talk about socialized medicine in Russia under the Soviet system. And she contrasted it with medicine in old imperial Russia, before the Russian Revolution, drawing upon the experience of the very famous Russian novelist and, and short story writer Anton Chekhov. Chekhov, by the way, was a medical doctor. He worked in rural Russia in the late 19th century. And how he served the patients and got paid in the chicken and the pig because the peasants couldn't afford anything else. Or they children of, the, of, of, the, of those families would do some chores around his house to try to assist him a little bit.
Only that way can we reverse this. In other words, we have to have the perspective and the courage to say what Leonard Reed said, is if there was a button on the podium to make the regulations and the controls and the interventions go away, you'd push the button. Because unless people are told that the state should not be involved, that the state need not be involved, that there was a time before this when the private sector, where private individuals in the marketplace, and in this setting doctors and patients, served and handled these problems, there'll be no radical change. You're accepting the paradigm, the mindset, the rules of the game of the interventionists, the regulators, and the controllers. It's necessary to make our fellow citizens realize that there's a world outside of the box. Can that work? I would argue yes. Often it seems as if change is difficult or impossible. But I'll just use one example, and I'll use the case of the country that my wife came from. All of us lived in the shadow of the Cold War most of our lives in the 20th century. Most of us saw the superpower giant, military, with nuclear weapons, a totalitarian regime with a secret police that killed millions. Who could have imagined that that system could be brought down? It disappeared in a handful of years with barely a, uh, in the historical terms, uh, barely a loss of life, handfuls of people rather than some cataclysm. And why did it come down? I know some Americans think it was because of Ronald Reagan and uh, the, you know, the armaments race, but my wife will tell you that it was not that. The reason it finally came down is because people no longer believed in it inside. The system had be, been delegitimized. People no longer believed that government could provide the services or could do good for them. People began to question whether the state should in fact be involved in controlling, managing, manipulating, dominating their lives. And when that was delegitimized, the system imploded. What we need to do is to make our fellow citizens think that way too, to delegitimize their belief, confidence, and faith that this is the role of government or that it can do the job. It will take time, but if we do that, by questioning the system and talking about alternatives, we can restore a system of freedom. Thank you very much. Thank you.